I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah uh, chapter 2, as we make our way through this uh, familiar, short, and yet profound book. For the reading of God's Word today, uh, I'd actually like to begin reading in uh, chapter 1, verse 17 in Hebrew. Um, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, and so... Uh, This is really where the story begins, Uh, chapter 1, verse 17, and I'll read down to the end of chapter 2. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see all that Christ has done for us. Help us to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that he has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, when I was in seminary learning to read Hebrew, the first book that they had us read was actually the book of Jonah. And that is because the Hebrew in the book of Jonah is relatively simple. It has simple vocabulary. There's a lot of words that are repeated in it and very simple syntax. And yet when we got to chapter 2, and we got to the psalm that I just read for you in verses 2 through 9, they had to skip that part. And that's because, as opposed to Hebrew prose, Hebrew poetry is very difficult to read. All of the typical rules of grammar and syntax and vocabulary go out the window. And so for us as sort of kindergarten-level Hebrew readers, they said, you could just skip that part. And really, if you take this psalm out of the book of Jonah, the story flows quite naturally. You see that the Lord appoints a fish, and Jonah's in the fish for three days and three nights. Verse 1, he prays to the Lord. And then verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomits Jonah onto dry ground. And that has led many scholars and more typically critical scholars of Scripture, to suggest that the psalm that we read in our passage today actually doesn't belong to the the book of Jonah. It wasn't originally 
part of the story, and perhaps it was added later by the hand of another scribe. They look at the psalm and the context of the psalm, and they say, it doesn't really fit. Well, a couple things to say in response to that. It's not uncommon in, in, uh, in Hebrew narrative, where you're reading sort of the historical narrative, for them to jump out into song, kind of like in a musical, for them to sing a psalm. Think about the, the story of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, we read of the, the Red Sea crossing and, and the Pharaoh and his host being drowned in the Red Sea. And then what happens in chapter 15? Moses and Miriam lead the Israelites in singing a psalm of praise for their victory. We see the same thing in the book of Judges, where Deborah breaks out into psalm in, uh, in Judges chapter 5, declaring the, the greatness of God in the victory that they just won. Well, so it is here. It's not uncommon to find this psalm uh, inserted within the historical narrative. And far from being uh, a, a different theme or different ideas from the rest of the book, I would suggest to you that the psalm we read in our passage today is actually the key to understanding the whole of the book of Jonah. It gets into Jonah's mindset and shows what he is thinking or what he should be thinking about the major uh, uh, lesson of the book. And indeed, it points to us as new covenant believers about the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we get into our passage today, a couple things to remember by way of context. Last week, we saw Jonah out at sea, attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord and get away from the call that he gave him to go to the city of Nineveh and cry out against them. He did not want to go to cry out against the Ninevites because the citizens of Nineveh were the Assyrians, the harsh enemies of the people of God, and he had no desire to warn them of the impending doom. Why? Well, because they might repent, and if they repented, he feared that the Lord would forgive them. And yet he takes this drastic action of going down to Joppa, paying a fare, getting on a boat, and going out to sea to go to Tarshish. Just the simple act of going out to sea is a major step for Jonah as an ancient Israelite. You see, we as 21st century Americans typically think of the sea as a place of beauty and recreation. We like to go watch the beautiful sunsets, or maybe you, like me, like to go surfing or swimming in the ocean. On a windy day, what do you see? Well, you see people in their sailboats enjoying the beautiful sea. Well, far from being a place of beauty and recreation, in the ancient world, the sea was seen as a place of chaos and destruction. The ancient Israelites wouldn't step foot in the sea. And so even the act of Jonah getting on a boat, the ancient Israelites would question his sanity for even boarding that ship. And, you know, the the text talks about a ship. If we saw this thing, this would uh, pale in comparison to the ships we have today. Uh, We would question whether this thing was really seaworthy that he was getting on. And so for this reason, the sea in the ancient world was often associated with death itself. And so only the most stout-hearted or foolhardy, depending on how you look on it, would step foot on one of these ships. 
And so for Jonah's response when questioned in the midst of the storm by the sailors, what should we do to you in order to appease the wrath of this God, Yahweh, who's sending the storm? What should we do to you? When he says, you need to pick me up and hurl me into the sea in the midst of a raging storm, we need to understand that this would have meant certain death for Jonah. Um, aside from the fact that Jonah, in all likelihood, probably didn't even know how to swim. And he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. That's why the sailors were so reluctant to do so. They didn't want to do that. So they worked hard and they, they, they did everything within their power to avoid the fate of certain death for Jonah. But eventually they do. And ultimately that results in their salvation. And as we finished the the sermon last week, seeing these pagan sailors uh, offering up a sacrifice to Yahweh and vowing vows to him, resulting in their hearts, their their salvation resulting in praise and thanksgiving, perhaps some of you were thinking, well, what about Jonah? You know, meanwhile, Jonah is drowning in the sea. Well, that's where our story picks up today. But before we, we find out about Jonah, we see that the Lord, again, is the main actor. Notice that in, in uh, the last verse of chapter 1, where we read, the Lord appointed. You see, the Lord's one step ahead of everyone. We find out that even as Jonah was being hurled into the sea, he had already made a provision for him in the form of a fish. That's important to note here that the Hebrew word here is translated, is properly translated fish. In other words, this is not a whale. And so all the children's books, all the times you were taught in Sunday school, when you saw Jonah in this great big whale, you were, they were wrong. It is a fish that is being described here. Now, of course, skeptics would, would say, well, how on earth is this possible? How on earth can a man survive three days and three nights being swallowed whole by a fish? That is impossible. To which I would say, you're right. It is impossible with man, but not with God. You see, with God, all things are possible. And we need to understand that this fish is no ordinary fish. This is a particular fish that the Lord appointed to serve as a vehicle for his servant Jonah. So this is no ordinary event. This is a miracle where God goes above and beyond his ordinary means. And so any attempt to sort of give a naturalistic explanation, anyone who might tell a whale of a tale to say, well, maybe somebody could survive if they're swallowed by a particular type of whale, while well-intentioned to show that this is a plausible thing, is ultimately, I think, misses the point. This is to be seen as a miracle. God appointing a particular type of fish, a great fish, to swallow Jonah. And it's also important to note that this isn't the last time that the Lord appoints something in the book of Jonah. As we'll see in chapter 4, he appoints this plant that grows up immediately into the size of a tree to provide shade for Jonah. And then he appoints a worm that kills the tree overnight. And then he appoints a a, a great wind and storm, as we already saw back in chapter one. And so this isn't the only miracle in the book of Jonah. But in all of these supernatural acts of God, 
whether it's the fish or the great storm or the plant that grows in chapter 4, we need to understand that the Lord is trying to teach Jonah and us an important lesson. Each one of these appointments that the Lord does is a lesson for Jonah. And so as Jonah spent three luxurious days and three luxurious nights in the belly of the fish, I'm joking, could you imagine what it would be like inside of a fish and in these cramped quarters? And I mean, how do you even know it was day or night? It would have been pitch black. As he spent those three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he had time to think. And as we'll see, he had time to pray. Now, we would, when we look at this prayer that Jonah, that is recorded for us in chapter two, we would expect to read a prayer of deliverance. I don't know about you, but if I was cast into the ocean and swallowed by a great fish, my prayer would be, oh Lord, please save me. And yet that's not the type of prayer that we read. It's not a prayer for deliverance, but it is a prayer of thanksgiving. In other words, Jonah is thanking God for his deliverance while still in the belly of the fish. And so the the cramped quarters aside, we shouldn't see the fish as a means of judgment, but rather as a vehicle of salvation. The fish is his life raft, taking him to dry land. And so let's look at this prayer that's recorded for us. Uh, begins in chapter 1 when he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Now, when Jonah was still on, on deck, he was stoically silent. Remember the captain who woke him up and says, pray, please cry out to your God, perhaps he'll save us. We never read of Jonah actually praying. The, the sailors were praying to the Lord, asking him not to hold them guilty for Jonah's death. And yet never once do we read that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God while still on board the ship. He appeared to be stoically silent, saying, pick me up and cast me into the sea. And yet that changed as soon as he hit the waters. As soon as he hits the waters, you better believe that he was crying out to the Lord. And that's what he's talking about, past tense, when he says, I cried out to the Lord in my distress. You see, when he's drowning... He's crying out to the Lord. That's the, the, the prayer of the, the cry of salvation that's not recorded for us. And so when, for the rest of the psalm, we need to understand that he's not describing his time in the fish, but he's going back and he's describing his experience of being thrown into the sea of this near drowning experience. That's the distress that he speaks of. And he takes, as is the case with all poetry, Poetic license. He sees here in his brush with death something far greater that is death itself. And so he describes his time, his, his near drowning, as a visit to the midst of Sheol itself. He says, out of the belly of Sheol. See, boys and girls, Sheol was considered the abode of the dead. It was thought of the place that you went when you died. And so Jonah felt that not only was he near drowning, but he felt like he drowned himself, that he was not just at the gates of Sheol, but in the very midst of it, in its belly. And so it is from there that he sees himself crying out to the Lord. And what happened? 
Well, he says, the Lord answered. The Lord heard. Remember, this is a prayer of thanksgiving for the Lord's deliverance. He's viewing the fish as that deliverance from death itself. And so he goes back in verse 3 to recount this experience of being cast into the sea. And yet I want you to appreciate who he's attributing this act to. Look there in verse 3. He says, for you cast me into the deep. Now you may say, well, wait a minute. I thought it was the sailors who cast Jonah into the sea. I thought it was Jonah who was the one who said, you need to pick me up and cast me into the sea. Wasn't it because of Jonah's act of disobedience that he was even there in the first place? And yet here Jonah attributes him being cast into the sea, not to sailors, not to himself, but to the Lord. He sees the Lord as the primary actor, the Lord as the one who is in control of all these things. And that was acknowledged even by the sailors themselves when they said, look, Lord, don't hold us accountable for this man's death, for you have done according to your will. This was all according to your good pleasure. And so ultimately, Jonah recognizes that the Lord is the one who is responsible for him being cast into the sea. It's interesting that he fails to mention that it was all as a result of his disobedience. And yet he sees God as being in control of all all of it. Notice how he expands upon that. He says, your waves, your billows, this storm that you created, this situation that you have got me into, he sees the Lord as behind it all. And that leads to him having a grave fear. He says in verse 4, his thoughts saying, I am driven away from your sight. Now, it's interesting, back in chapter 1, we read of Jonah's attempts to get away from the presence of the Lord, right? That's why he got in the ship and sailed off to Tarshish. He wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. But here, it's as if Jonah fears that he may have succeeded. He fears the consequences of being driven away from the presence of the Lord, being taken away from his sight. And ultimately, what he's fearing here is death. His grave fear is death itself. And we need to appreciate Jonah's situation being an old covenant saint, one who's living before the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death in the Old Testament was viewed as separation from the presence of the Lord. That's why we read of in the Psalms that the dead do not praise you. They're not in the assembly of the upright. They're not in the land of the living. That's why so often in the Psalms we see David fearing going down to Sheol. Don't leave me there. And that's Jonah's fear here, that he's been cast away from the Lord by means of death. It was viewed, rightly so, as an enemy. It still is our enemy. And yet in the Old Testament, it was empowered by the law. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And so while living under the time of the law, death was to be feared at all costs. It was viewed as separation from the Lord. It was the wages and consequences of sin. And so that's quite different from us as New Covenant believers who can, know, can look upon death as a, as a disarmed enemy that ultimately will be destroyed at the resurrection. The power and sting of death has been removed and we need not fear it 
In fact, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, we can taunt it. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, Jonah couldn't sing that in his time. And so he feared death. He feared being driven away from the presence of the Lord. And yet even in the midst of his turmoil, even as he feels that he is in the very belly of Sheol itself, he has confidence. Look there in the second half of verse 4. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He has confidence, even in the midst of his mortal fear, that he will, uh, he will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Somehow he knows that he'll be able to get through this. And yet he goes back and he recounts this experience in verses 5 through 6 as he says, I went down. And you can just picture Jonah just sinking down uh, with seaweed wrapped around his neck, <laughs> drowning to the bottom of the sea. This is the culmination of Jonah's descent that began all the way back in chapter 1. It began with him going down to Joppa and then going down into the inner parts of the ship. Now he's going down to the bottom of the sea. He's going down to the gates of death itself, seaweed wrapped around his neck. And so it is that point that he remembers the Lord. Remember when he was on board the ship, he wasn't praying. He was stoically silent. And yet when he's going down to the bottom of the sea, it's at that point that he remembers the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Jonah had somehow forgotten that he, had, that he was a worshiper of the Lord, his God. Uh, he just confessed that to the sailors on, on board the ship. I serve the Lord, Yahweh, who's the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and dry land. No, he didn't forget who he worshiped. But when, he says, when it says that he remembered the Lord, it's in a covenantal context. And to remember in a covenantal context is to call to the forefront of your mind the terms of the covenant, the promises of the covenant, and then to act upon them. And so Jonah, as it were, remembers all of the promises that God gave to him and to the Israelites, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And then he acts on it. And we see him acting upon it by way of prayer. To remember is to pray. So what is it that he's remembering? Well, perhaps he's remembering something like Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And so he remembers these promises, and then he acts on the promises. That's what it means to remember in a covenantal context, by praying to the Lord. And what happens? Well, he says, my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Now, previously, we saw Jonah being confident that he would one day stand before the Lord, visit his temple again in the land of the living. And yet here, even while he's in the heart of the sea, in the belly of Sheol, he knows that he doesn't have to be physically present at the temple for the Lord to hear him. He could be 20 leagues under the sea and the Lord can still hear from his holy temple. And he's confident. He's confident that the Lord heard him. Well, this psalm of thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord for the deliverance, even while still in the belly of the fish, has a moral lesson. And we see that moral lesson in verse 8, where he says, those who pay regard to vain idols. You see, in stark contrast to the living and true God, who is omnipresent and 
omnipotent, everywhere present and able to do all things, we have the idols, the dumb idols, the idols made with hands of silver and gold who have eyes but cannot see, hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. These dumb idols are powerless to save, as we already saw back in chapter 1. Remember the pagan sailors, they were calling out to their gods to no avail. And so Jonah has a warning. We might question, who's this warning for? Perhaps his fellow Israelites, the northern tribe, the northern tribes who were led away to worship these idols. He has this warning. If you go after them, if you serve vain idols, you forsake something. You give up something. What is it they, they forsake? They forsake steadfast love. The Hebrew word here is chesed. This is uh, often translated steadfast love or even covenantal faithfulness. And on the part of God, the best way we can translate it is grace. They forsake the, they, they, they forsake the never-ending supply of grace. Later on in the book, Jonah confesses that God is abounding in steadfast love. And so those who worship these false gods, they cut them off, they cut themselves off from this never-ending supply of grace, and yet here Jonah is now rejoicing as a recipient of such grace. So in response, he gives his voice of thanksgiving, the Torah. Again, remember, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. He's giving thanks while still in the belly of this fish. And then ironically, the end of the psalm, Jonah promises to do exactly what we saw those Gentile sailors do at the end of chapter 1 when he speaks of offering a sacrifice to the Lord and paying his vows. This is precisely what the Gentile sailors did after they were delivered from the storm. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they vowed vows unto him, perhaps presumably to offer sacrifices again and again. And so even here, while Jonah is unable to offer a sacrifice in his cramped quarters, in the belly of the fish, he says, I will sacrifice to you, perhaps even physically present at the temple in Jerusalem. He vows to do such a thing. And this glorious psalm ends with a declaration that is perhaps the best way to sum up the book as a whole. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, salvation uniquely is God's possession. Why? Well, because it's his prerogative. He alone chooses to save. It's his specialty. He alone can do it. It is his delight. He loves to save. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. No, it is his absolute delight. It's according to his infinite good pleasure to save all who call upon him. See, this is an important lesson, not only for Jonah, but for all of us to learn. That salvation belongs to God. And as Jonah rejoices in his own salvation, being saved from drowning, perhaps he doesn't realize its full, the full implications of the statement. Because if God delights to save, if salvation is his unique domain, we need to keep in mind that Jonah is not the only one who's saved in this book. Remember the Gentile sailors? 
Well, they were saved too. Well, what about the citizens of Nineveh? Well, the Lord will save them as well. And as Jonah is very happy that the Lord is saving him, we're going to see his response when he finds out the Lord relenting from disaster against the citizens of Nineveh as being quite contrary to the behavior he has here. And so in response to Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving, we see again that the Lord is in total control at the end of our passage in verse 10 when he speaks to the fish and he tells the fish, okay, he's had enough. He's learned his lesson at least for now. After three days and three nights, Jonah's journey is over. And we read that the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, the contrast between Jonah's sublime words of praise and the undignified manner of his arrival could not be greater. We need to appreciate this this total contrast of Jonah. Just picture him being vomited up with, with stomach juices and and seaweed still wrapped around his head and perhaps other, you know, particles of of partially digested fish and sea creatures, you know, he's sitting there on this on dry land. Jonah is brought back to a stark reality. And really, when he lands on dry land, he's back at square one. This is where he was in the first place. So many lessons. This could be a sermon all on its own. Don't be like Jonah. How many times Have you found yourself back at square one and realized, well, maybe I should have listened to the Lord in the first place? Well, we'll see Jonah get a second chance. He gets a do-over in chapter 3, where the Lord repeats his command, get up and go to Nineveh. And we'll see if he listens. But for now, I think it's important in conclusion to wonder about this wayward prophet. Certainly, as we see from his psalm, he's thankful for his own salvation. But what about others? Does he rejoice at the salvation of even his enemies? Moreover, for one who was entirely responsible for the plight that he found himself in, remember, he wouldn't have been thrown into the ocean if he didn't get on that boat in the first place. It's interesting that we do not find in this prayer any overt confession of sin or request for forgiveness. Never once in this prayer does Jonah say, God, I'm sorry. Never once does he say, you know what, I was wrong. Never once does he say, oh Lord, please forgive me. Do not hold to my account these sins. And what a contrast this is to the Gentile sailors who when they prayed out to Yahweh, they didn't say, oh Lord, save us. They said, Lord, don't hold us guilty. Never once does he confess his sins, even though he's a sinner. Jonah really did deserve death. He deserved to be in the belly of Sheol. But now he finds himself on dry land and very much alive. And so we might ask in conclusion, how does this point us to Christ? Well, we don't need to wonder. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 12, when his accusers were asking him to demand a sign on on demand, you perform a sign from heaven, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights 
in the heart of the earth. See, our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that Jonah was a type. Jonah pointed forward to the one who was to come. And Jesus even himself says, I am the greater than Jonah. And so we might ask, well, what is it in particular that Jonah points forward to? Well, Jesus tells us. His three-day and three-night journey in the belly of the fish points forward to Christ's time in the tomb. But really, that's where the similarities end. Because whereas Jonah almost died, we know that Christ actually died. Whereas Jonah felt abandoned by the Lord, Jesus really was abandoned by the Lord. While Jonah feared that he was driven away from God's presence, Jesus cried out in that moment of darkness, my Lord, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jonah suffered because of his sin, but Jesus suffered, not for his own sin, but for ours. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think the Heidelberg Catechism sums up what Jesus did for us as the greater than Jonah in uh, question 37, when it says, what do you understand by the word suffered? And it says that all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against sin, uh, against the sin of the whole human race, in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting dominion, uh, damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness and eternal life. And again, when it asks about what do we mean when we confess that he descended into hell, it says that in my greatest temptation, I may be assured that Christ my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before, has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. You see, we don't need to experience what Jonah feared. We don't need to experience what Christ actually did because he did it in our place. And yet, even as Jonah stood on dry ground, so Christ arose. Jesus spent time in the grave, and yet he did not stay there. That's the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign is the resurrection of the dead. The sign is that Christ suffered these things for us, but then conquered death itself, our final enemy. He overcame death. He removed sin. He fulfilled the law. And so, as I said, this key verse from the whole book, that salvation belongs to the Lord, it belongs to Yahweh, is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even his name teaches us that. His name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. And that's why the, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you were the greater than Jonah. For you suffered, not for your own sins, but you suffered on our behalf to redeem us from the power of the grave, to save us from the wrath of God, which we all deserved. 
And even as you stood on dry land, once again, you were raised. You even now give to us that eternal life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with thanksgiving. May we sing unto you a song of praise and live lives in light of that fact. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.